Alrighty, welcome back everybody. Time to give a weekend update and see how things are going. I have a lot to go over today, so I'm going to give you just a quick outline of this show. Hopefully I can fit it all in within a half hour. I'm going to try. Now, the first thing is going to be the first quarter update and the month update. I finally got the statements back from M1, so I can take a look at the dividend growth of the first quarter and the first or last month and then the first quarter of 2019. We're going to be looking at that. The second thing is I got feedback on the previous video I did about the 300,000 net worth, as well as a couple emails that I've been asked before, that a lot of you are, are building your portfolios, you're, you're wanting to find out good holdings, and you're wondering why I chose different things. And so what I'm going to be doing is giving more of a deep dive into my portfolio. Now, since I have so many holdings in so many different sectors, I can't possibly fit in all the research and that type of thing into one video. So I'm going to be choosing, and I'm going to try to make this into a series, but I'm going to be choosing one, one of these sectors to go over. And I'll try to do it once a week. Today, I want to go over the consumer one. And I'm going to be going over these different companies, why I chose them, how they've been performing, and which ones are on my watch list. So you can get an idea of why I think these are good ones that fit into my portfolio and the reasons that I have them. Other than that, I'm going to be updating you on some of the news items that we've been following with Boeing and updates on what's going on with that company. The battle between Apple and Spotify and a documentary that I watched recently on Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. So after that, I'll be answering a few of your questions. Before I actually dive into any of that, I always forget to mention this at the end of the video, so I want to do it at the beginning. But I'm closing in on 1,000 subscribers. And the reason that's cool is not because 1,000 is just a round number, right? I have over 800 right now, but once I get to 1,000, that's when YouTube allows me to monetize my videos. So up until now, I haven't made any money with any, any of these videos. So if you're listening to this and you enjoy the content... It could help me out immensely if you hit the subscribe button. It's almost like you're donating to me for free to you. So I'd appreciate it if you could do that and help me out, get this channel above a thousand subscribers and then be fun. I can actually make some money with YouTube. Other than that, I did want to go and just explain something. I had it on my mind today and I was just thinking about it before doing this, uh, this episode. And I was thinking, why did I choose investing to make videos about? And... I think it's interesting because right now it seems like all the content that people click on, the stuff that's shared the most and the stuff that there's the most buzz about is completely political related. So you look at all these type of like political common political comedy shows mixed together. You have John Oliver, you have late night comedy shows, you have these Netflix shows, you have different different ones where they hit on politics and other things like Joe Rogan. And I was a consumer of all of these things. I still am to a lot of them because it's entertaining. When you know about current events, when you know about what's going on with politics and culture and all of these different things, it's a very interesting subject to follow. But what I found was I was an avid listener of all this stuff. I consumed all of it and I kept up to date with all of it. And it's great to have your own political views and to be well informed about them and to, to feel like you have strong arguments with everything you're doing. The problem is, is that with politics, I didn't feel like I was getting much out of it. In the way of it, does, does it actually benefit my life? That's what I thought about. And the more I thought about it, I thought learning about all this stuff is interesting. And I guess it makes you have a more well-informed vote. But when it really comes down to it, this isn't really benefiting me or my family all that much. Then when I actually transitioned, I said, I need to like use some of my 
precious time during the day to actually invest into something that will motivate me towards something that will actually benefit my life a little bit more. And I started listening to Dave Ramsey. I started listening to different to different podcasts. I started uh, watching CNBC clips of Warren Buffett interviews and of different investors. And I started getting really into that. And the thing is, is even though it might not be quite as entertaining, I noticed that it drastically benefits my life more than politics does. Rather than being a divisive thing where people have all these opinions and they share them on social media and people are just bickering over what's the what's the right argument, what's the wrong argument, all that type of stuff. What I was doing was educating myself on how to make money. Now, having money to me is a lot more important than uh, and for my family's safety, for my future, for my enjoyment. Having money has a lot more benefits than having the most informed opinion on whatever po- political subject. That type of stuff, it's good to know, but I felt like this was going to be a lot more helpful. And I felt like a podcast like this would be a lot more helpful to a lot more people than another, I don't know, another type of show like that. Not that I was planning on doing that. I had some other ideas of things that I could do YouTube videos on. But I really feel like this has the chance to benefit people the most. Didn't want to go on a big tangent on that, but I just thought it was an interesting thing that I was thinking about earlier today that I'd share with you. Other than that, let me jump into the month review. Let's first go and take a look at the graphs here. I have these two graphs that I keep track of. This is a quarterly one. This is a monthly one. You can see the month to month now. And we have March. Boom, $108 in March. That's pretty cool. I broke $100 in passive income in one month. And I did that without seeking extremely high yield or extreme risk, in my opinion. I don't think my portfolio is risky. I was able to break the $100 mark. And I'm averaging above $100 now. Now, I had one question because I don't use right here. I don't use the activity page to, I don't use this page to add up my dividends and to get this number. And the reason why I think that's a little messy, you can do it this way, but you're prone to making mistakes. And I want this to be perfectly accurate. So I use the monthly statements from M1. That's why it's a little bit delayed. Now I had a question on how do you get to that statement? What you do is you click here. I don't want to do it on screen because there's so much stuff that I'd have to, I'd have to edit out, but you click here, you go to settings and then you go to documents and then you click on the monthly statement there. On the monthly statement, there's a lot of different pages, but I'll show the part that is the important part to look at. And I'll put it on the screen now. So right there, you have the account summary, you have the income and expense summary. The thing you're looking at is that taxable dividends right there, this period. Taxable dividends this period is how much you were paid during that month, which is $108.19 for me. Year to date, I've been paid $204. So I've earned more than $204. I've earned over $300, but I've been paid $204. Now, if I look at this, that $108 is right here on this graph and that shows the trend. And then I added in this nice little Google trend line. So you can see my passive income going up month month after month. And you can see that it's not perfectly linear, meaning every month it's not going to go up. If I go to my holdings, these companies, they don't try to even out when they pay dividends. They just pay them on their own schedule. And then whatever they gather up is when I invest them. And that is what shows right here. Now, the important thing to look at to me is to see the year over year growth. So I have January of 2019. I can compare that January of 2018. Obviously, this is zero, so that's not too telling. But you can see that it's going to be going up year over year. If I keep reinvesting, if I keep building my portfolio, this graph should even go up during a recession. That's what should happen, is your dividend growth should be resilient enough to go up during a recession. Because unless so many companies cut their dividends that your dividend growth actually goes down, it should continue to go up. In most cases, it does. Even if your portfolio, 
even if your portfolio value goes down. This is the quarterly graph. This just is clumps of three months together. And you can see it edged up a little bit more from 2018 uh, Q4 to Q1 of 2019. Not like amazing growth from these two, but again, it's a more general thing. So it's going to continue to keep going up. And this is the most important graph to me is this monthly graph. I love looking at it, seeing my passive income, income I do not have to actively work for, continue going up. So we can look at this week. I've earned $44 the month. I've, you know, my portfolio has gone up almost 3%. I've earned $134. The last quarter, minus a few days or past a few days since January 5th, I've earned $311. So again, we're trending over $100 a month now in passive income. Now, the consumer, this is what I wanted to go over as well. I'll hit this back to all. And again, I had a lot of questions on like my specific portfolio. People wanted to re me to review my holdings. And the reason that I don't really do that a lot is this is one of the things that I like about dividend portfolios is most of the analysis and most of the thought and, and decisions come when you first initially make your position in a company. Unlike capital appreciation, I am not constantly reviewing all of my holdings. I'm constantly monitoring them so that if they cut their slash their dividend, I can sell them. Or if they have something drastically changing or eroding in their business model, I can sell them. But I'm not constantly looking at the price and the earnings per share and all that type of stuff. If I look at consumer, I want to go through and show you a few reasons why I purchased these companies and just give you an idea of which, which ones, why I chose these over different companies. Let's take a look at the top one that I have the most, Costco. Obviously, this has been a well-performing holding, up 42% since when I purchased this. Now, I don't have a lot of money in it, but I've held it for quite a while. I made $100 on just this holding. Costco has so many things that I like about it uh, qualitatively. If we ignore the numbers, it has so many things qualitatively that I like about it. I like the shopping experience there. I like the fact that they treat their employees well that people like enjoy working there. As far as retailers go, they're probably one of the best to work for. Um, I like the fact that they have an impeccable return policy, that they give shoppers confidence. They source quality goods there. I like the fact that they target their stores around areas where there's homes and there's people that have stable jobs even during recessions. That's typically where you'll find most Costco's. I like that they have a resilient business model because they have a membership. That's where they make most of their money. And then that allows them to price all their goods down to where they're just cutting even. So if Costco did not have their membership, they would make no money. They would just break even all the time. They price their they price the goods in their stores just enough to cover the store. The memberships where they make all of their profit. So they have an incredible business model geared towards offering people the absolute lowest margins on it. And all you have to do is pay 50 bucks a year to get those lowest margins. There's other things that Costco does really well. They have a low attrition rate. Let's take a look at the actual graph of it. If I go to Costco, here is their dividend history graph. This one's actually hard to see, especially because, let me take a look at this. You can zoom in a little bit there, but this one's hard to see because they have these special dividends that are really high numbers, and this is throwing it off. Now, I can go to the dividend growth on this one, and that gives you a clearer picture. They have really good dividend growth. Overall, their, their dividend yield is still really low. If I actually just go to dividends here, their dividend yield is 0.93%. This is the biggest downside of Costco as a, a dividend growth company, is that so investors like them so much, they pay so much for them, they're not looking for the yield as much. I still include them just because I like the company that much. And that's mostly because my personal interactions with them. A lot of these companies, 
are based off of my interactions with them. Some of them are not, but a lot of them are. Home Depot and Costco, one thing you'll notice is the retailers in this are ones, Home Depot, Target, and Costco. I pretty much picked retailers that I think could withstand Amazon, that won't be affected by the onslaught of Amazon. That was one thing that I considered with it. Costco, I believe, can withstand Amazon because it is a huge big box store and Amazon can't really sell its toilet paper for less than Costco. They really can't. Now, even if they get them from China or do whatever, they can't. Uh, Costco at least matches them in those prices for that. Home Depot, I don't think that Amazon will be uh, a replacement to Home Depot as well because Home Depot sells a lot of like outdoor do-it-yourself projects and mostly that's hands-on. People want to see what they're shopping for. They don't want to buy a lot of hardware on Amazon and not really know what they're getting first. And I think that Home Depot is a type of company that has a pretty good moat against Amazon and Costco does as well. Target, I think, has less of one. So it's just your traditional little retailer. I tried to pick what I thought was the best shopping experience out of all the retailers like Target, which is mostly Target and uh, Walmart. And I just think Target has a better grasp on on new trends. I like their stores a little bit more. I think that they have, they, they're doing better with interior design projects. But the other one on my watch list between these three was Walmart. And I just, it just came down to picking one. Now, let me look at the graphs real quick on this to show you on this. So here's Home Depot, and you can see the dividend growth history. It, flat, it was flat right here for a number of years, especially through the recession here, but it didn't go down ever. It just continued to go up, and it's actually gone up a lot. If I go to dividend growth history here, again, you see this nice curve upwards. You'll notice almost all the companies I have, this is a big graph for them. I think it's more important than just the starting yield of the graph or the starting yield of the company. If you're just looking for the starting yield, then it doesn't show you a lot. This shows you natural history, what their dedication is, what their management is doing. If I look at Target, let's take a look at Targets. Here we go. So here's Targets. Same thing. Impeccable dividend growth history. It's a good dividend growth company. If I look at the dividend growth here, I mean, they've been growing 10 years, 15% year over year. The dividends have done really well, and they haven't lowered them even during recessions. They just truck right through them. So that was a huge recession, especially for retailers, and it did fine. It's growing its dividend even in the face of Amazon. So I feel confident holding these companies. I like what they've done. I'm already up quite a bit on them. Nike, I just think that they have too much brand recognition to really get hurt by by too much. I think that uh, out of apparel company, I think that they're one of the better ones. If I look at Nike's dividend growth history here as well, amazing dividend growth history. They have one that's a little bit lower, but other than that, just a solid dividend growth history. And I like the products that they make. I, mostly I like their the way that they've made their self ubiquitous with certain cultures. So if you're into any kind of the, the newest trends and that type of thing, Nike does such a good job with marketing. And I, I think that that's important. It's like Coca-Cola. It's like Nike's like the Coca-Cola of apparel. Um, Comcast is one of the rare companies that I actually do not enjoy my interactions with them. I think it's like investing with the devil. They're just a big monopolistic telecom company that takes advantages of its users. Pretty much my thought process of this was I have no control over any of it. And the feeling of having no control over it and the options that I picked, they're really the only one that I have available to me, unless I want to have three megabytes down and, and one and a half up. So Comcast is totally an investment where I invested in the company knowing it's taking advantage of me so that at least I can get something back from it. And 
I think that uh, their other assets don't bother me quite as much as their internet. So Comcast, let's take a look at their description here. They own some other things that don't bother me as much. They own, that acquired NBC Universal Group, including CNBC, MSNBC, and USA, the NBC Broadcasting. So they, they own some media a- assets that don't bother me as much as their internet ones. Those just operate like any other normal business. If I look at their dividend growth history, it's pretty good. I can look at it and see that they've just been raising theirs year over year as well. And that's what I want to look for. I think Comcast faces a good risk of being further regulated, but that doesn't bother me. In fact, it would probably make me feel better about owning it if it was further regulated like a utility. If that happens, I would actually feel better about having it as a holding. Right now, again, it's it's mostly a holding that I like. I like that from a business standpoint that they have a monopoly on people and they can't do anything about it. People just have to use it. It's the internet. I don't like it from a controlling standpoint from a consumer standpoint i don't love it but i'm looking at this from an investment standpoint i want to make money with this portfolio comcast has a virtual monopoly on internet in my whole region and so i'm going to invest in it now moving on we can look at coca-cola let's take a look at coca-cola's dividend growth history here you can just see this this is a long history since 89 just continually going up right now their dividend growth is pretty much matching like inflation so over the last 10 years, it's gone up 7.47%, but over the last year, it went up 4.67%, and you can see that it's continually going down. So their dividend growth rate is declining, even though they're in, they continue to increase their dividends, they're doing it by smaller amounts, which just shows that they're, they're reaching their mass. They're a huge company, and there's, not, there's, there's only so many people that you can sell soda to. On top of that, I think, Com- or I think uh, Coca-Cola has a lot of maneuvering to do because from what I've seen, trends are moving away from your traditional soda. They're moving a lot healthier. People are moving to sugar-free. They're moving to a lot of different types of drinks. So I do have some concerns with Coca-Cola. The thing that Coca-Cola has is they have brand recognition over decades. They have a pretty good moat as far as exclusive contracts with all these universities, with all these restaurant chains, with all these theater chains. They have such a, a grasp on the economy that way and it's hard for other competitors to get in they need to keep moving into different products and so far they're they're doing that and they're doing it pretty well but we'll see if they can continue to grow it's hard to grow when you're already that big now disney disney is a company i'm investing in because i think they're just a, a pretty awesome company as far as the content that they create and the circle that they've created through theme parks through their network of studios and through their merchandise sales They have almost like an ecosystem like Apple does, where they have this ecosystem that just circles back into itself over and over and over again. Let's take a look at their graph. Disney has a different dividend growth history. My investment on them isn't entirely off their dividend growth. Obviously, it went up quite a bit here, dropped back down, and they don't have the strongest dividend either. In fact, if I look at one thing, let me jump out of this for one second and look at the actual pie, the details about this. Okay, so if I go to this page, I can actually look at the details. Now, if I look at this pie, if you're just investing in this for the first time, Disney, along with the other holdings, has an average of a 2% yield. So none of these companies have a very high yield. And that's why I, I notch them down in my portfolio so much that they make up like 4% of the overall portfolio. Because they're just not great at paying out income. They're good at capital growth and they have lots of other good qualities about them. I want them in my portfolio, but they're not going to be the ones that are really making my portfolio a ton of money with dividends. 
Um, so I have them a little bit lower right now. Maybe I'll notch them up when I have a more of a base of REITs and I'm making a lot more money of income through those companies. But right now I have these ones a little bit holder, uh, a little bit lower. So let's go back into the consumer pie here. So Disney, a lot of different reasons I have this company. I think that the content that they produce is awesome. They own so many historical series. They're coming out with a streaming service in 2019. So sometime this year, they're going to be releasing their streaming service. Now, I know a lot of people in the demographic in their mid-20s are like, well, I'm not going to sign up for another streaming service. I'm not going to, you know, I got Netflix, I have uh, HBO, I got YouTube TV, I got whatever, right? Okay, but you got to know the demographic doesn't appeal to you if you don't have kids. If you have kids, I guarantee you, if, if there's a family and they have a couple kids, they are going to sign up for that Disney streaming service. $5 a month to get access to a host of of not weird shows that your kids are finding on YouTube, Disney-approved content that's actually higher quality, that adults can enjoy watching it as well, there's going to be families signing up for that. And once they sign up for it at that low price point that undercuts all the other streamers, that's just a easy decision to make, oh, you know, six, five, six, seven bucks a month, they're going to slowly increase the prices, but people will already be hook, line, and sinker at that point. They'll already be attached to it. I think Disney streaming service is going to do great. I don't have a lot of money in them. I already only, you know, I have a, only 10% of this pie that's already 4%. So I only have 100 bucks in them. But Disney's one that I, even though it's been flat, the stock has actually, like, it's actually just sat pretty flat for the last while. I think it's, I think it has a lot of good growth paths with the streaming service. I think it'll do really well. Moving on to the next one, we have Estee Lauder, which is, a recession prone or recession proof type of company it's one of those ones that people girls will buy makeup even during recessions so i look at estee lauder as somewhat of a safe pick they own so many makeup brands i don't know all the details about it i was asking my wife all the different brands she uses and like 80 percent of them are owned by this one company so even brands that aren't as old as estee lauder or the, the new and up and coming makeup brand people don't realize that it's just people from this company either buying companies that made these brands or they're just making them themselves and selling them under a different name. And that's what they do. They're extremely good at it. I think I'll hold them probably my whole life if I if I have any say in it. Uh, their dividend yield currently is 1.5%. So again, the reason that I only have 75 bucks in them is because of the low yield. But I still want to have a holding and slowly build up that that as this portfolio grows to 100,000 or 500,000, I want to have a piece of Estee Lauder. Um, if I look at their graph, let's take a look at it here. They had a big top link here, and then it has restarted. So this is what I'm looking at here. If I look at like the past seven years, it's been pretty pretty consistent, but we've had some trouble before. So it's not unforeseen for them to cut their dividend before. Now, moving on, Texas Roadhouse. This is one where I owned Cracker Barrel for a while. And that's because it has a really high dividend yield, Cracker Barrel does. So it's a common one for, for dividend growth investors. The only downside of it is that I think it's just an outdated food. Like I said, I think things are moving more healthier. I don't see Cracker Barrel. I see it as an older generation thing. So I don't know if it's going to continue to grow the way that it has in the past. If I look at Texas Roadhouse, at least the one in my, um, at least the one in, in my area is always packed if I look at Texas Roadhouse. And I don't know if that's everywhere, but in my experience, the ones that I've been to are like always packed. Pays a, deven, a decent dividend yield of 1.9%, especially for that industry. But it's also been, if I actually go here, it's actually been growing its dividend really well 
as well. If I look at the dip in growth, we have 19% growth rate over the past five years, annualized a 15%, almost 16% dividend growth rate. So a gro- dividend growth rate that's beating the market quite a bit. And that's what I like to see. And Texas Roadhouse, I think they do pretty good food. Out of the restaurant chains that you can hold, there's a lot of different options out there. That's the one I decided to go with. Now, that pretty much covers it. The whole consumer pie has done pretty well as far as percentages go. Again, I, I changed my portfolio to look more for income than I did capital appreciation because all of these gains can be wiped away, but the income is what's consistent. That's a lot more consistent to me, and that's what I'm looking for. So even though this holds a lower percentage, this is the type of thing that I'm looking for. On each of these companies, I have the two different aspects I looked at. I have the qualitative and quantitative. I look at their dividend growth history. I look at the fundamentals of the company from the number standpoint. And then I also look at aspects that I think are important in the company. Whether they can withstand Amazon is certainly a huge component of a consumer company. That is a threat. It's put a lot of companies out of business. That's one thing you want to look at, as well as just their growth path. So if you don't think that they have a great growth path, most of these, all of these, I think, have a really decent growth growth path. I hope that helps. I don't want to spend too long doing this. I'll continue to go over different parts of my portfolio. You can let me know like different things that you want to look at with this. So I'll probably get better at reviewing this as I'm going on. But I hope that, that gives you an idea of my consumer pie. Alrighty, so moving on to this, let's take a look at the news. Boeing is in a lot more trouble. Let me first go to this clip here. Morning, say the Ethiopian Airlines pilots turned off the system designed to prevent the plane from stalling, but somehow it then started again. The Boeing 737 MAX is grounded over software problems linked to two crashes that killed more than 300 people. Chris. Okay, so what she just said, I also looked up, there's a uh, Wall Street Journal article on it, and it does not look good for Boeing. So pretty much Boeing's initial like defense of what was going on was that all the pilots had to do was follow the procedure. They just had to flip off these little trim switches, just two little toggles, and then they could have regained control, manual control of the plane, right? But it looks like the pilots did that. So they're looking at these black boxes or whatever, and they're reviewing the audio, and it has a recording of like all the steps that the pilots did. Now, the pilots did turn off that trim switch, and then the plane still kept, they couldn't regain control after that. So they're pulling up even after that switch is off, and they still can't regain control of the plane. Now, that poses a problem for Boeing because it shows the pilots did initially follow your instructions, and the plane still went down. So what happened? Now, that's where we get more into the speculation. And there was some speculation from it. There's another article. Let me open this one up here. This is from the Seattle Times, and it dives into a little bit more speculation by one, like, really, I guess, I don't know this industry too much, but this is a a famed aerospace uh, person that studies all this stuff. And he said that uh, his name's Peter Lemmy, and he's an aerospace consultant, and he explains a possible issue that would happen from it. And so he says that the MCAS had swiveled the stabilizers upwards by turning a large mechanical screw inside the tail called a jack screw. This is pushing the jet's nose down, but the pilot had pulled his control column far back in an attempt to counter, which would flip up a separate movable surface called the elevator on the trailing edge of the tail. The elevator and stabilizer normally work together to minimize the loads on the jack screw, but in certain conditions, the elevator and stabilizer loads combine to present high forces on the jack screw and make it very difficult to turn manually. Now, it goes into detail, and I'll summarize pretty much what this article says. 
but he explains that the wind force on the angle of the the jack screw was just too much and that the pilots weren't able to pull it up and the proper way to do this was to completely let go of the handle so that it could unswivel and then and then pull back up afterwards which they had no way of knowing in real time and it's it's ridiculous to assume that any pilot could figure that out but the moral of the story is is although there is some possible way these pilots potentially theoretically could have solved this that it's not just a simple thing now you can't just blame it on the pilots the ethiopian airlines and that's the trouble that boeing finds itself in boeing as a company needs to be able to blame this on someone else if they blame it on the, if if it's their fault that's going to be more in trouble for them so they're trying to say that it was just a communication error that these pilots were had less experience but it, the initial investigation at least up until this point shows that these pilots did follow the initial protocol and they still had trouble, which is, you know, it's not acceptable by Boeing standards. So they're in the process right now. Boeing's in the process of making these, all these, uh, all these software fixes to the, right? They're, they're making it so that it requires two of the sensors instead of just one and that it can be switched off easier and all this type of stuff that will hopefully fix it. It needs to be reviewed by the FAA and then it needs to be reviewed by the other governments, other countries' regulatory bodies. Once it gets reviewed by all of those, Boeing can get their planes back in the air. They've already cut production on this plane by like 20%. We're, we might see more, more trouble for Boeing ahead. But Now, I had one question on the last video about Boeing. And he asked, you know, what do I think about this holding? Do I still hold it? That type of thing. I still hold it. So I look at Boeing as just a really long-term thing. It looks like this was like a lot of incompetence and negligence. It doesn't look like they were intentionally doing anything. Obviously, they didn't intentionally do this. There was, I don't think there's any malice behind what they did or real deceit. I just think it was them being a little bit more careless than they usually are. Now, as far as the holding goes, I plan on holding it until they cut their dividend. So even if the stock drops back down, I used to be up quite a bit more on them. But that's the beauty of this portfolio is I don't really have to go in and out and make these really difficult decisions on buying and selling every single time something happens with any company. Now, if there was some kind of deceit, if Boeing really showed a web of lies and deceptions to get something passed when they knew that it wasn't safe, I would go ahead and sell it. But I haven't seen that yet. I just saw your good old incompetence at play. And that is something I, I can't hold against different companies or I probably wouldn't own any. Other than that, let's move on from that. I watched this documentary. It's it's an HBO one, and it's called The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. Let's take a look at the trailer here. What do you dream for? That less people have to say goodbye too soon to people they love. I had... Now, this one is, it was pretty good. I thought they did a pretty good job on it. It actually highlights a lot of the same concerns this came out before all this Boeing stuff is is evolving. But in the documentary, it actually highlights a lot of the concerns with like like kind of tech stuff taking over the world with driving cars, taking over healthcare. And you can see it even in, in Boeing in this flight is that you got to be more careful with software. And a lot of times you think that you can just push out things, but simple updates can cost hundreds of lives. If there's something wrong with one of the pieces of software, it can cost hundreds of lives. And Theranos was a silicon valley tech startup that went into healthcare and you can see the problems with the silicon valley the motto of, of move fast and break things that playing out in healthcare where you cannot move fast and break things it has to move really slow and be super tested let's take a look at a little bit more of it 
I had heard about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. But you know, her story is so compelling. She was going to herald a revolution in medical treatment in this country. Everyone worshipped the ground she walked on. She could do no wrong. She was the next Steve Jobs. Elizabeth was lying about the accuracy of the blood tests. It's all a show. She didn't want anybody to see what was going on in there. We don't need to explain ourselves to competitive companies. It comes back to fake it until you make it. It snowballed into this crazy situation. Can you tell us a secret? I don't have many secrets. I'm... So I thought it was a pretty good documentary overall, overall showed the whole story. There's a funny, uh, another funny thing I found online that I want to show after watching that. I thought this was pretty great. How's my hair? Do I look into the camera? James, what is your dream? My dream is to transform the landscape of modern medicine. No more disease, no more doctors, no more death. What if every person in America had a box in their house and every person could poo in that box? <laughs> you leave it there and we'll do the rest. Honestly, great parody there. I thought it was pretty spot on. It's funny that he talks about the box so much in this parody because she was obsessed with that box. The size of it was another big thing. She didn't. She, it had to be super small. And although all the engineers that she hired were, were telling her, look, we have the laws of physics to work with here and we cannot fit a device that does this many different tests working with real things like blood into a box that small, right? This isn't like a piece of software. There's physical things that happen inside of this. And she just didn't care. Just said to get it done or you're fired or I'll find someone else. And and didn't care and it ended up being a huge mess and everything ended up breaking inside of it. And anyway, it's a, a pretty funny parody. So well done by James there. But uh, another thing I wanted to touch on with this whole story is you always hear about no matter, it seems like no matter what people really get in trouble for, they're always charged with like the same type of things. They're charged with wire fraud and bank fraud and these type of things. I read about that a little bit and it pretty much just is because no matter what the actual underlining crime is of defrauding someone, so lying to investors and telling them that your that your device can do things that it can't and getting it in at different stores, all of the presumptions, the way that they actually are legally defined are by the transactions. So that's where they actually get you, is because you can go and lie to someone, but if there's really no transaction behind it, if there's no goods that are shipped from one person to another, nothing of value shipped, then it's really hard to charge for that. You don't like usually when there's defraud and lying, there has to be some kind of transaction that follows it. And that's what she's being charged with is all the wire fraud, all the transactions behind all of those lies. So I hope that clears it up because there's really no charge that just follows just the lying itself. These really heavy crimes are usually wire fraud and bank fraud. The last piece of news I wanted to touch on was Apple Music overtaking Spotify in paid U.S. subscribers. This is, a, I think, a pretty big landmark for Apple. They actually were expected to do this a long time ago, funny enough, like six months ago. But Spotify made all these new campaigns and, and different things that kept their lead in the U.S. for a lot, lot longer. But now Apple has passed them in the U.S. And there's a couple things I wanted to highlight from this. So one part I just want to highlight from this article 
says Apple, it says it has used its marketing muscle to accelerate subscriptions, spending twice as much as Spotify on TV ads in the U.S. since 2016, with spots during National Football League games, award shows, and other big events, according to the ad measurement firm iSpot TV. Apple is also not including trial members in their subscription count. So this is just the amount of subscribers they have, but they also have like big deals with uh, Verizon where they have a ton of people on six month trials. So once those people come off the trials and a portion of them become paid members, that number will continue going up. Now, it also says that the streaming music service is also trying to counter Apple's distribution advantage of 1.4 billion active devices through an agreement struck in August with Samsung Electronics, making Spotify the default music service across the South Korean phones, TV, and speakers. Isn't that interesting? So Spotify's big complaint, and this is what uh, I believe Microsoft got in trouble for, was putting their browser on their own operating system, making it the default. The EU regulation fined Microsoft a ton of money with an antitrust litigation, but now Spotify that's complaining about Apple's advantage with being having the default on its own platform is combining with Samsung to make its own music streaming service the default on all of Samsung's devices. Again, this is what every business does, and I don't have a problem with Spotify doing it, just as I don't have a problem with Apple doing it and charging other people to use its app store that it created. So I think the Spotify claim is is in real terms, I think it's pretty weak. I think that they're just leveraging government, which lots of companies do, to try to help them as much as possible. And I don't think it's a bad complaint in business terms because the EU government has been very heavy-handed in its regulations with American tech companies. But Spotify has done lots of things that are that are consistent with the behavior they deem as anti-competitive. They've combined with telecom companies to make it so that their player doesn't count towards data caps. Littler companies, they don't have the advantage of doing that. That makes Spotify uncompetitive with them because the littler companies, they count towards your data limit. And now they're working with South Korean company Samsung to make it so that they're the de facto on every device. So they're, they're doing lots of things that under their terms could be quote unquote anti-competitive. To me, it's just competitive behavior because Spotify is competing against Apple. They're doing everything they can to succeed in the face of Apple. Apple, it might seem other people come from this perspective too. The Apple's so big that they can't possibly fail. I totally agree, uh, disagree with that. Apple's not so big that they can't fail. They're not this unbreakable monopoly that can never go away. They could be the next IP, IBM. They could be the next Oracle, the company that, that somewhat just fades away and it still has a lot of clients that are there. Their iPhone sales are slowing and that core part of their business that's carried them through all this growth is slowing quarter after quarter and they need something to replace that. So they need to be able to grow through services. If they're hampered to grow through services because they already developed an app store, I don't think that's fair to Apple. And I don't think that they're as uh, undefeatable as other people might believe so. I think that Apple can be competed with and they can be they can be the next IBM or the next Oracle or the next company that goes away like that. They're not able to continue to find paths to grow down. Other than that, I wanted to go to the last video and just do a few comments uh, and react to some of the questions and, and give some answers here. One of them was from Rugby Rocks 5 was that he was surprised that I don't utilize IRAs and he asked any reason like that I don't have one for me and my wife. I do have a Roth IRA now. 
So I started one last year and I've been building it up just as I have my normal portfolio. The reason why I haven't had one for the past seven years is simply because I wasn't as educated on it. I didn't know what they were. I've heard about them before, but you really don't, not enough to actually start putting money into it till before now. And the reason I didn't start off right away with a Roth IRA when I started investing is because like I said in the previous video, initially I thought that my investments were just going to be a temporary place to store until I was able to store my money until I was able to buy an apartment. Now that I'm thinking of doing it on a more permanent basis, I would have been better suited to put it into the Roth IRA. And obviously I can't, I, it does has a, a cap as well. I can only put 5,500 in last year, 6,000 this year, where I have like 32,000 in my portfolio that I put in all in just the past year, a little bit over like almost like a year and a half. So I've, blown out the cap that you can contribute as well. But I do plan on, I'm building up my Roth area right now and I plan on maxing it out every year as well. And there's another question that if this portfolio is good for a Roth IRA and the portfolio and its performance aside with all the risks that come with my portfolio, aside from that, the style of investing with dividends is great for Roth IRA because the income that you're getting paid that normally you get taxed, you don't pay any taxes on. And the, the dividends being reinvested don't, ca don't count towards your contribution limit. So it is optimal to have that into a Roth IRA. Now, there's other arguments like a Roth IRA wraps up your money for until you're 65. So you may as well put it in the super aggressive high growth stuff. But if you like dividend investing and you don't want to pay taxes and you don't have enough money to put it into a, like max out a Roth and put it into an individual, definitely put it in the Roth because you're just going to do the same thing except not pay taxes on your income. So other than that, there was another comment by BR Investing, and he talks about how he did everything wrong that I did right in the last video. This was the one of how I got to a $300,000 net worth um, by age 28. And there's a lot of factors that play into that, right? There's, there's opportunity, and there's a little bit of luck mixed in, and there's persistence, and all these different ingredients that you need. Now, one thing you have to realize is if you're watching that, and your net worth is like, five grand, or if you're in debt and you have a negative net worth, that's not something that you should fret over, right? Because if you're somewhat below, you know, if you're 40 or younger and you already are watching this type of stuff and doing it, you're already ahead just by your knowledge because most people wait really long to actually start implementing this stuff. So you got to realize too, when you're on different topics like this and different forums where you're talking with lots of other investors, that naturally you're going to be next to an audience that um, is has a higher net worth than most people because they're more, more focused on this stuff. They're implementing the principles. They're building it up. So one thing I even looked at that I was uh, totally caught off guard by was I looked up the marketing, like the marketing materials for Seeking Alpha, if you want to market there, and they have things on the demographics, right, of the users. And the average like income is like 150000 and the average net worth is well over 500000 and, you know, when you go into investing forums, it's a concentration of the people that invest and have higher net worths and, and do all of this stuff. So it's easy to make yourself feel bad if you're not quite up to the level of other people. But just keep that in mind that you're surrounding yourself with people that are going to push you in the right direction and that you'll get there eventually. So other than that, that's all I wanted to leave you with for this week. I'll be doing another update um, I'm deciding whether I want to do this Dave Ramsey video. So I have a Dave Ramsey video where at the very least I'll give my opinions on it, but I had a lot of clips that I wanted to show. I'm just concerned about the copyright claims. If I use X amount of seconds of these clips, I don't know the line of what I can use and what I can't, right? All of it would be commentary and reaction, but I just want to use a few seconds of this. So I'm trying to figure that out. But 
once I get that figured out, I should do a video on that uh, for next week and then follow the portfolio as well. So I'll get, I'll talk to you guys soon. We'll see you.